1: I hope I can be the type of guide you can rely on to unlock the agency you have to reach your own mental and physical competency. Let's get started with what's coming up on today's episode.
0: Coming up on this week's show.
1: In this episode, we're going to be looking at irritable bowel syndrome and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and whether or not they're connected. The chances that either you or someone you know experiences some form of IBS, whether in the form of bloating, gas, constipation, diarrhea, reflux, or nausea are pretty high in these modern times. That's quite the list of symptoms, isn't it? Mostly, though, the mystery surrounding its solution or how it started can remain unsolved. This mystery is what we're here to explore in this episode. Common frustrations for patients with a long history of IBS diagnoses from various specialists and practitioners is that they don't actually have a clear insight into exactly how it happened or how it uh, occurred in the first place. And worse still, they come out from their practitioner consultations with a lack of precise tools to help them get long-term relief of the symptoms. I was actually talking to a patient this morning, literally, who's had IBS for 10 years And she laughed when I said, how many times have you received a prescription of relaxing, stressing less, or getting a handle on your stress? And this is just a really quick idea or a quick example of exactly what people with IBS can go through from particular practitioners. So a quick teaser in the sense of what's coming up in this episode, SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth may actually be the breakthrough that clears up the mystery for IBS for many people, including people that you may know suffering today. I've seen patients present with IBS diagnoses from their doctor and SIBO from Dr. Google and often with some confusion about how they relate to each other and this is exactly why I'm putting this episode together. The answer is that it's a chicken and egg problem in the sense that one can cause the other or IBS can cause SIBO or vice versa. So look, before we get started into their connection, let's deconstruct the nuances of both just to better understand how they're connected. So if you're new to irritable bowel syndrome or IBS or you're a sufferer, you're most likely not that new to it because you've Googled it a million times. But a simple, concise definition of IBS is a chronic functional disorder of the colon and large intestine defined by disturbed bowel habits, abdominal pain and discomfort without an organic and identifiable cause. As with other syndromes, the understanding of IBS has evolved and is diagnosed now under three more specific subtypes, IBS-C, so that's IBS with constipation, IBS-D, which is IBS with diarrhea, or IBS-M, which is IBS with mixed bowel patterns, also referred to as IBS-A, which is standing for alternating or alternating bowel habits. One of the most interesting parts of C and IBSD is actually their gender specific uh, element In interestingly women who tend to present more with IBSC, men tend to present more with IBSD although I think for me the mix is probably a little more uh, even than that but anyway. From my own clinical experience, I can tell you that patients with IBS often present with a complex and unique collection of symptoms. I think most practitioners in my position would agree with that. But for the sake of this explanation, though, let's go through some of the standard and most often distressing symptoms, which are things like urgency to go to the toilet the abdominal and muscle pain, straining, bloating and fatigue and I'd probably add brain fog to that one as well for most what can be most frustrating for the uh, what can be most frustrating is the nature in which these presenting symptoms can alternate. The abdominal pain can sometimes travel to different parts of the abdomen for no reason. Sometimes it's the lower left, sometimes it's the lower right part of the abdomen and there seems no way to connect the dots between why these pain, these pain points are uh, coming up for people. This erratic presentation can be highly unsettling for those who experience it. The reason for this though is down to how many different activating factors there may be. And some of the reasons behind the genesis of IBS may be the following. So there's quite a list here. So altered motility within the gastrointestinal system. So motility is the ability for your digestive system or your digestive system has to move food from one organ of the digestion to another and has a considerable influence on your bowel patterns. Uh, Another factor would be a reaction to a previous infection. For example, an E. coli infection. Gastritis is obviously a big part of that as well. Brain-gut interactions is a huge one and as I've mentioned before, I made a little snide remark there in some ways about people getting stress-less type of prescriptions uh, in the past for IBS. I think that's largely not happening as much but it's actually not well known that IBS-C sufferers often have a lower level of serotonin and conversely IBS-D sufferers have a higher levels of serotonin so sometimes managing the chemical landscape in the brain can be a nice way of helping people to manage some of those more extreme bowel patterns alterations in the bacterial environment within the or microbiome so that's your classic dysbiosis if you've ever heard that name before it just means you know an imbalance in the bacterial environment a bacterial overgrowth could be another factor wait a minute i think that might be sibo Food sensitivity, so an interesting stat on food sensitivity is over 70% of IBS sufferers find their symptoms improve with a low FODMAP diet. So that's uh, fructooligosaccharides, that's uh, fructans, that's fructose or fruit sugar. Now lastly, inflammation within the intestinal tract can also be quite a large factor for IBS and this is a big one if you feel as if you've had previous infections, for example. A more common characteristic of IBS or at least for patients that present to me in the clinic is the chronic nature of how long they have been suffering. I used the example of a patient this morning, a new patient who I saw who's had it for almost 10 years on and off and that's a really long time to feel unwell. On average, I see patients who have been dealing with these issues as i said for at least three years before seeking help and three years could be considered a small amount of time for those seeking and trying different treatment methods over time it can be a frustrating and challenging journey for those in this situation but it seems that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth may be the answer to at least some of these cases which Honestly, once you do have an explanation as to why the these mysterious symptoms that seem related but you can't quite work out why, uh, once you get an explanation as to why they are maybe occurring, it can be quite freeing. Let's look at SIBO. Let's look at small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It's uh, definitely a buzz term online. It's definitely a buzz term amongst functional medicine. But uh, let, let's go into it if you're new to it. So the definition of SIBO occurs when excessive numbers of bacteria in the small bowel also known as the small intestine cause gastrointestinal GI symptoms commonly the bacteria found in excess include gram negative bacteria or bacteria without a cell wall that ferment poorly digested carbohydrates producing that gas and bloating that's also common As the small intestine is a critical site for nutrient absorption, symptoms of SIBO can often present as a result of malabsorption caused by the bacterial fermentation mentioned previously. It's necessary to define what malabsorption means in this case, and I think that's really, really important. It doesn't mean you're not getting your vitamins and minerals, although in some severe cases, some vitamin B12 and iron deficiencies have been seen in SIBO. More so, it's your carbohydrates that may not be completely absorbing, leaving some remaining in often the final part of the intestine, small intestine, or the ileum to ferment. This fermentation then creates the gas, as I mentioned before, that can drive that common bloating, fullness, and distension. So, evidence suggests that the typical symptoms described in patients with a positive SIBO test are as follows. So, you've got some abdominal pain, diarrhea, constipation, or both, nausea bloating, flatulence, fullness or distension and fatigue and finally poor concentration and I added that in there because I think you've always got to consider the cognitive function or the cognitive effect of these things. So does... Do those symptoms sound familiar in relation to what we just covered with IBS? I think they kind of do. It's not hard to see the similarities between the proposed symptoms of SIBO and the ones associated with IBS, and studies are now actually connecting the two. Further studies can consolidate this relationship, but current estimates suggest that up to 78% of patients with IBS suffer from SIBO. So at a clinical level though many people with IBS are going through the SIBO breath test uh, and treatment process seeing results that they didn't think possible. So whilst we still need to do a lot more confirmation when it comes to the studies I think it's really really important to understand that there are opportunities now through some of the testing and through the treatments that result from some of that testing that can offer uh, some gateways to feeling a lot better from IBS symptoms we're going to take a break on free and inspired radio and I'll be back and we're going to talk about the connection between IBS and SIBO and where some of these connections can be drawn and actually uh, kind of amplified if you like in relation to how to get better
0: time to take a break are you enjoying this episode of free and inspired radio there's no better time to take back your personal health sovereignty if you want to connect with more free and inspired episodes simply subscribe to your favorite podcast platform or visit the website at www.philipwatkins.health for more information let's get back to the show
1: Yes, welcome back to Free and Inspired Radio. I hope you're enjoying this show so far. In this episode, we're exploring IBS and SIBO. In the first section there, we kind of just defined IBS and SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth just in their own independent sense there. And in this last section of the podcast, we're actually going to look at some of the things that may connect IBS and SIBO and whether or not they can be mitigated in order to help you get better. So let's look at something that if you've listened to previous uh, episodes or incarnations of this podcast, you'll know that it's something very close to my heart and that is poor digestive function. Now, diminished stomach acid and poor digestive function are potential origins of both IBS and SIBO. And one of the world's most overused and prescribed drugs could actually make it worse. Now, if you if you're interested in exploring how the ineffective digestion or the ineffective function of your digestion may actually be causing some of your digestive symptoms, please go to the episode that goes through the whole thing. I break down the role of all of the digestions of the uh, digestive organs and how they can break down and how their ineffective um, function can actually cause some of your symptoms. So there's a full podcast if you want to explore it. In this part, I wanted to actually go through another reason why your digestive function might be less effective than you prefer. And you, you wouldn't believe it, one of the most the world's most overused and prescribed drugs protein pump inhibitors or PPIs now the diminished or low stomach acid uh, for IBS and correction of it or what's commonly known as hypochlorhydria can, can be a really critical part of the actual long-term recovery from IBS post the shorter term treatments with things like diet and and the antimicrobials that you see in natural medicine a lot of the time the hydro, hydrochloric acid correction or the gastric juice correction can take months it can take a long long time but chronic moderate exposure to stress is also a big part of the consideration in developing the low stomach acid, and I think this is partly why it does take quite a long time for the correction of these things to happen post a successful um, you know FODMAP diet or uh, post you know successful SIBO treatment. Still, it's actually essential to assess the role of protein pump inhibitors in the origin of the symptoms, especially if there's been a history of their use in the past. So as with most commonly prescribed drugs, uh, PPIs play a role in managing people's symptoms in the short term so that things don't become worse i.e. if you have really bad gastrointestinal reflux, for example, uh, you may risk developing Barrett's esophagus, which you then may risk getting stomach cancer or an ulcer or something really, really serious. So look, whilst we always tend to go into negative spaces if you like in around, uh, around pharmacy and especially when we're focusing on drugs that are very very overused and over prescribed and may I say they are very overly used and over prescribed in Hong Kong especially we always just have to remember the gray area people get better from their ailments from these prescriptions we have to acknowledge their place and just saying that we should never give them to people because they're always going to cause this or that you know if you're ill and you get better you're going to be pretty grateful for that medication so that's just a little sidebar rant on that uh, in that sense but look the key part about it is that PPIs don't just have the potential to affect the acidity of the gastric juice and we've explored previously on this in another episode of this podcast that if the acidity of the gastric juice changes that has quite a large knock-on effect to the other organs of digestion but in this case The overuse and overprescription of PPIs not only see that lowering of all-important acidity, but it also causes a significant change in the bacterial diversity of your microbiome. That's super important. Now, it's becoming clear that the connection between IBS and SIBO is easy to see, but difficult to differentiate between due to the overlap of these activating factors. And it was quite easy when we went through those symptoms before. They almost sounded like the same condition, didn't they? PPIs are involved in the development of SIBO according to some pretty clear studies. Still, they have evidence also in actually helping IBS in some cases, which means that adequately assessing each situation on a case-by-case basis is still highly critical to a successful outcome. This need for individualization is actually where functional testing can come in. Just a short one on that one. I mentioned the positive research in, with PPIs and IBS just to slowly or just slightly amplify what I was saying before about the fact that some of these drugs, whilst you know, they do cause harm to people over long term use, hey, they can help too. So look, let's keep an open mind. Let's talk functional testing though, because this is where often the explanation can start if you've been struggling with IBS and have had no real way to articulate why this has been happening. SIBO breath testing and comprehensive stool testing can help create a more focused treatment for IBS symptoms. So fortunately, in the case of digestive symptoms, the test don't guess mentality, which I think is Test don't guess are probably a bit overused nowadays, but hey, here we are. Um the test don't guess mentality clears a lot of confusion around the origin of either SIBO or IBS, as I just mentioned. Studies confirm that the correction of abnormal readings and latulose based, based breath tests correlate with symptom improvement in IBS cases. So we can start to see the connection here between doing a SIBO test and helping IBS. Further studies imply that the same breath test may be the best marker to use for bacterial disturbances seen in IBS cases. So once again, slowly but surely, we're starting to see some really strong journals around confirming how these two things are connected. A SIBO breath test can indicate dominance in a particular form of bacteria, either methane or hydrogen forming. So what does that mean? It's just basically that the byproducts of the existence of some of these bacteria um, uh, involve hydrogen gas or methane gas. And these uh, different forming or hydrogen methane forming bacteria can directly influence the type of herbal or antibiotic treatment used to rebalance the overgrowth and offer insights into how things kicked off in the first place. Now, a really nice example of this is a positive baseline in the lactulose version of the SIBO breath test can suggest that IBSD sufferers may have a better response to a commonly used antibiotic called rifaximin. Now, Rifaximin has become very, very popular in relation to positive SIBO outcomes and it's used by a lot more integrated doctors. But I I have a relationship with a few GPs in Hong Kong where if the SIBO treatment doesn't work out, I also send them for Rifaximin treatment to good effect. I know a lot of my colleagues do that as well. So look, these studies nearly always prove to be valid in practice in the sense that Using the testing can offer quite a a strong direction in relation to treatment, but it also highlights how much more focused and ex- expedited things can get now with the luxury of this testing and all of those amazing people that are doing the research for us and finding out how best we can use the testing in a clinical setting. Now, moving on to a comprehensive stool exam. So this is a little different from what you may get from your GP, which is generally looking for Giardia or Salmonella infections or something. A little more acute um, a stool exams such as one of my favorites the gi360 can go into a lot more detail regarding the imbalance of the microbiome this test assesses both probiotic and prebiotic status essential functional indicators such as nutrient absorption markers like the enzyme elastase which points to hydro- hydrochloric acid status and insights into carbohydrate and fat absorption amongst a wide range of other features such as inflammation assessment gut-associated immunity, which is incredibly important, and the presence of candida and parasites. I've teased a an episode on gut-associated immunity and something called oral tolerance, which I will get around to, I promise. It's going to be a very exciting episode because it actually offers quite a large, or quite a large, gosh, quite a clear explanation as to how food intolerances can present. So all of the features in this stool test offer, how, offer clarity on how diet and accessory treatments such as things like pancreatic enzymes, you know postbiotics. Uh, that'll be a new one for you if you haven't heard. That's how fiber or some of the end products of our probiotics and fiber consumption and diet can assist in achieving effective treatment. So look, we've talked about the functional testing and how to get a better sense of the IBS, but is there a connection between IBS and SIBO? Well, it's fair to say that the answer is a resounding yes. Although, as you might have found in reading uh, or going through this article, it's fair to say that the answer is a resounding yes. Although, as you might have found listening to this episode, the definitions of IBS and SIBO are very nuanced and hard to differentiate between in many cases. There are many crossover symptoms such as bloating, bowel irregularities, pain, nausea and discomfort. Yet initial research into the connection between IBS and SIBO has brought a new way of educating people about what's going on and how they might help their issue." This new understanding is leading most practitioners, including myself, to begin to use the term SIBO more often as a way of explaining the broader diagnosis of IBS, or at the very least, how it's a sustaining or excitatory factor. As our understanding of how testing and treatment can become more effective at keeping things better, it's the patient, hey there, uh, that hopefully gets better to, ben- gets to benefit more than anyone. This new way of presenting things is where the connection between IBS and SIBO can become an absolute godsend for chronic IBS sufferers. It creates a pathway to action that can offer a high level of potential for a successful outcome. In some cases, it ends years of the daily roller coaster of IBS symptoms that can be both debilitating and frustrating with no end in sight. And This is exactly why I created this episode was to explore this because most people with IBS are very, very tolerant of their symptoms. They've learned to get around how they feel. They've often cut out half of the foods in their diet uh, that were regular in their diet or that give them symptoms, but then they have no real road to getting back to a diverse diet, which we all know is incredibly important for nutrient exposure and just a healthy life, really. And that's just not physically as well. That's also mentally. That means going to a restaurant and feeling a bit better to order whatever you want in context obviously but it also just gives you the freedom to not have to look over your shoulder constantly and worry whether or not some food that you're going to put in your mouth is going to make you feel crazy or or bloated for the rest of the day and etc really am I going to have to rush to the toilet after this meal is a common thing that I hear from patients anyway as usual I've been talking way too much if you enjoyed this episode please leave a review on iTunes if you feel the need to Or if you have any uh, further inquiries or you just want to read a little bit more about how you might be able to help your digestion and your mental health, pop to philipwatkins.health online and you can also join a, a mailing list there where I just mail out some newsletters uh, just to let you know that new articles have been written or a new podcast has been released. Slowly but surely, I'm getting better at this. I'm going to keep trying to do these in one take. So if there are mistakes through this, please, please, Put a smile on your face and and feel me squirm as I make these <laughs> mistakes and uh, and I will continue to I think to to get better. But I must say I'm very much enjoying this. Soon enough, I'm going to start getting guests on the podcast as well. So don't worry, we'll be having some very interesting people coming up and joining me on Friend Inspired Radio. But for now, thank you very, very much for joining me on this journey between or journey exploring SIBO and IBS. And I look forward to speaking to you next week for the new episode. Oh my
0: gosh, you made it to the end. This show is all about you, and we hope you finished this episode feeling one step closer to feeling free and inspired. We'll be back next week, but if you want to know more about Philip, please catch a digital flight to www.philipwatkins.health for further details about how we might be able to help. In the meantime, have a great morning, afternoon, or evening, and we'll see you for another episode next week.